Welcome to the Fitness FAQs podcast. I'm your host, Daniel Vadnell, Australian physiotherapist and calisthenics expert. Sandre Berg has close to a decade of experience in calisthenics, hand balancing and acrobatics. His physical skills are breathtaking to watch and have garnered him a loyal following. If you desire bodyweight strength and movement mastery, our guest Sandre will teach you what it takes. If you were starting again as a beginner now, Sandre, what would you do differently? I did this ego lifting that I tell people not to do. <laughs> uh, I mean, most of us have been there. Uh, there, yeah, it's easy to get carried away in your ego and forgetting uh, or not considering what might be most productive. Like in the case of a one-arm handstand, uh, the most, the single most uh, destructive way of uh, trying to learn a one-arm handstand is just throwing your hand hand out. You know, trying to balance on one arm. You need to like build it up gradually and actually focus on balancing. If you, if you're not balancing, then you're not doing anything for your one arm handstand. And for me, that that was at least a year of wasted time. And I know it's like that for a lot of people as well. And a lot of people lose motivation this way. Luckily, you know, you meet people, you get some tips and uh, that's what happened to me. And uh, I sort of got through it. But uh, there was a point there where I was super demotivated and I was like, oh, is it really worth it? This learning this, uh, this one single skill and you know, in the end, sure it was, but, uh, <laughs> um, yeah, things like this, there's a lot of wasted time, but, uh, is it really wasted time? Uh, because you, you learn a lot of things along the way as, as well. And I think that's, uh, something that people should uh, consider that it's easy to look back and say, oh, I wasted so much time doing this and this, and it was inefficient, but. I mean, you might not uh, you might not gotten to where you are right now if it wasn't for those mistakes uh, and the lessons that you learned from them. Uh, so in that sense, I'm pretty happy about all of uh, my whole journey actually, because it sort of led to how I do things now, which I'm very happy about. A lot of people want to achieve advanced bodyweight strength skills like yourself. What other bodyweight prerequisites you would say are important for people to master first? Oh, well, I would rather uh, call them uh, beginner goals. Um, uh, and obviously the push-up, uh, like mastering the push-up in a sense that you, you can do at least like 20, 30 push-ups without any problem, uh, I say would be like a very uh, nice uh, thing to, to develop. And you, pull-ups is a given. I mean, the, the easiest, those are the two easiest um, things to, not easiest in terms of um, skill, but easiest in terms of what you need in order to do them. I mean, anyone can find somewhere to do a pull-up or, or do push-ups on the floor, you know. Um, and you don't require that much equipment to regress these uh, skills either. Can you just elaborate on why it is important to do the basics? Because people see the cool strength moves online and they think, oh, 
I'll just do them to get better at them. Who's this guy telling me what to do here? I'm just going to rush the process. Why do people need to do it? Well, um, basics are basics for a reason, you know, uh, and I, I'm not saying that people should blindly just uh, do whatever uh, some someone tells them, but there's a reason why more or less every coach, calisthenics coach, emphasize getting a strong basic foundation. And, um, and that's important, firstly, uh, for injury reasons. I mean, especially for the straight arm skills and for a lot of other skills, um, there's a injury component or I mean, you, you load your joints and your ligaments and your um, uh, soft tissue uh, to a much larger degree than you would in weight training exercises often. Uh, so you, you can potentially see a lot of injury if you don't spend considerable amount of time developing uh, these parts of your body as well. Uh, in a planche, for example, there's uh, the elbow joint is super exposed, uh, and the bicep and the bicep tendon uh, as well uh, is. It's not uncommon to get injured uh, due to rushing progressions, especially planche progressions, for example. I agree with you most definitely, and the way that I like to drill at home for people to focus on the basics is. As you said, you're more prone to injury. And if you're injured, you can't progress. So that's that's number one. Number two is it's likely to bottleneck your performance because if you don't have that base level of foundation with strength, muscularity, tendon integrity, etc., your body will be a bit apprehensive on actually progressing to its, to its potential because it, it feels like there's something limiting it from going to that next point because it's our body's designed to keep us safe and bottlenecks exist for that reason. So I just ask you again, just to really drill that home for people because it will save a lot of time. They'll perform better, progress faster and be a lot safer. Why do you use intuitive training and play in your workouts? Because that's sort of my reward. That's why I'm training, uh, strength training. That, that, that's sort of the, the, the ends to my means, uh, the goals. Uh, my goals is to be able to do like crazy shit with my body. <laughs> <laughs> and that, I mean, that, that's why I'm, I'm putting so much effort into my strength training so that I can uh, see some someone do something awesome and then know that with a little bit of practice, then I can do the same uh, or I can get ideas uh, like of cool sequences, combinations that I could do. And then I, I would know that, okay, if I just practice this and this and combine it in this way, then I will be able to do it. Um, that's sort of been my main driver and sort of my, why I do uh, all of this it's because I find this super fascinating and you said this at the start you having unstructured workouts sometimes and just playing is what allows you to have fun and be consistent for someone else if they prefer 
structure, dotting their I's, crossing their T's, knowing exactly what everything's being done, then they might not be as inclined to be doing this play style, but it makes sense. And that's probably why you're still going to this day as strong as you are. What are some handstand myths that we hear about online that you believe are false? Well, um, it's obviously subjective uh, very much. And I also, I think there's a lot of them. <laughs> uh, but I also, also think that uh, it's important to realize that uh, handstand has different functions depending on sort of where you want to do them. If you're a gymnast, then you might want to focus on different aspects of a handstand. Then if you are a circuit, circus artist or hand balancer or performer uh, in that sense. Uh, if you're a um, uh, contortionist, then you may have other priorities. And if your main goal is to do a handstand push-up uh, and you're a calisthenics athlete, just want to use the handstand to do uh, functional training uh, exercises and cool looking things, then there might be other uh, things to consider. Um, so uh, when I uh, say that I think there are certain myths uh, out there, it's um, more or less related to uh, it not being efficient in a way that it makes the handstand easier. I mean, a banana handstand has gotten to be the big bad wolf of handstands in <laughs> everywhere. And I, I really don't see why, because this is the first handstand you learn. I mean, unless you uh, come from a sport uh, that has already focused a lot, of, a lot on shoulder flexion, then it's going to take you at least a year, maybe two or even three to develop this shoulder flexion. Uh, and for the listeners who are wondering shoulder flexion, uh, okay, it's the ability to raise your arms uh, above your head in line with your body. Uh, I'm referring to here. Uh, and this is, a, this is a mobility skill that it takes a lot of time to develop and to then go to a beginner or intermediate hand balancer who's practicing handstands, you know, can balance five, 10 seconds with a banana shape. And sometimes it's not because of poor shoulder flexion, but often it is. And then to tell him to flex your shoulders, open your shoulders, blah, blah, blah. And he's physically incapable of it because he's lacking the mobility. <laughs> I find that stupid. <laughs> yeah, for sure. I mean, and what, I mean, what's the alternative? Yeah, I tell mean, them that you can't do a handstand until it's perfect. Then you're robbing a big part of the population yeah. of the joy. Exactly. And that's definitely not more productive. I, I, in these cases, I mean, there's a totally, there's a difference between teaching a kid from scratch to, to hand balance and an adult who's, you know, uh, haven't uh, stretched his shoulders for 20 years, you know. Uh, so in these cases, uh, I, I usually see that the, the, the most efficient way of go going about it is, of course, you should, you should tell uh, tell that person that, hey, your handstand is going to look better and it's going to be probably more efficient and uh, it's going to be easier to develop more advanced skills if you focus on your form. Um, but uh, for now, I would just suggest you practice these shoulder mobility drills on the side of your hand balancing practice. 
because it's not like I can give that person a cue uh, that makes his hand stand straight all of a sudden because it's going to take months at least to develop those that shoulder flexion. As long as you bend your spine so that your center of gravity is above your shoulders and if you have no angle in your arms, if they are perpendicular to the ground, then you don't spend more force. Uh, it's exactly the same. I mean, you, you see contortionists, they're basically doing a one-arm bridge handstand, uh, if that paints a clear picture. And they can, they can hold that position for a minute or two um, because they are flexible enough uh, and it looks cool when it's done on purpose, if that makes sense. How can we use bands to improve our bodyweight strength? I think bands are perhaps the most single useful tool uh, in bodyweight strength training um, because they're cheap and they're easy to bring along and you get them in different uh, widths, uh, in different strengths so you can ensure progressive overload in a structured way. And uh, the, 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 like the, the, ba the bad thing about uh, rubber bands are uh, that their strength is non-linear or mm. uh, they're actually quite linear uh, but they're not constant uh, is what I meant so um, a band uh, doesn't give you five kilograms of uh, help through the whole range it might start with five kilograms uh, in the beginning of the range and then uh, either decrease in terms if you use it for a pull-up or increase in if you use it in other uh, senses. Um, and it's not always a good thing. Sometimes it actually is. But like in a pull-up, you will get more help in the bottom. Let's say you get 10 kilograms of help in the bottom and maybe 5 kilograms of help in the top position. And um, I mean, depends on how you look at it. Uh, but the, the top position is usually the most difficult for most people. And this comes back to what you were talking about earlier, where bands offer you the ability to get those micro wins and set goals along the journey instead of just being like, I want to achieve a full planche or a full front lever. You can see that month to month you're decreasing the band assist. Maybe you're lowering the anchor height and you can see that measurable improvement over time. What would you say are your favorite exercises for using bands? All of them. <laughs> uh, for for my, my own sake, uh, I had huge gains when I started using bands in a structured way to train my planche. I mean, planche has been a pain in my ass for, for years through, I mean, uh, my, my body is not exactly perfect for it and uh, exercises like the planche and the front lever are heavily dependent on body proportions. Uh, so for me this has been a terrible, like a very long journey. And uh, using bands was sort of the, the thing that got me there in the end. What are cluster sets and why are they useful specifically for bodyweight strength? Well, cluster sets are sort of um, sets that are divided into uh, to, to subsets. So uh, a, a cluster would be a subset. So uh, instead of doing 
let's say five repetitions if suppose that five is your rep max uh, so instead of doing five repetitions and then resting for three minutes, you could uh, do three repetitions, do a short rest for maybe 20 seconds, and maybe you'll be able to do three more uh, sets, then rest for 20 seconds again, and then three more sets, or repetitions, sorry. Uh, and then perhaps you would be able to do two more even. So that would be four clusters and a total of eight repetitions and it would still be one set but you would collectively you would get more repetitions done and uh, so it's uh, sort of an efficient way of adding uh, more volume uh, without doing more traditional sets so you would do these subsets and you would not go all the way to failure but it's important to, like, you 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 couldn't if you you couldn't use an exercise with a ten rep max and then do subsets or cluster sets of three repetitions. That wouldn't make sense. So you would still need to stay like somehow close to this um, close to your rep max, but not so close that you won't be able to perform consecutive. Uh, cluster sets. When you're at some point, then let's say I can do uh, five repetitions of handstand push-up. That's my max um, against the wall. Uh, and then next week, maybe I'm not able to do six, but perhaps I could add a cluster set and progress this way instead of adding another set in the end of uh, the workout. So. It's, it's a way of being creative with how you enforce progress in your training as well. So perhaps in this case, I would be able to do uh, four repetitions of handstand push-ups plus a cluster set of uh, three repetitions. It seems like a universally sound strategy because after some time, it's very normal to plateau with traditional straight sets and it might be weeks weeks before you even can add an extra rep to that if you're doing sets of five so it just seems that clusters are a great way of managing your fatigue per set but accruing a lot more volume than would be possible with traditional straight sets and it seems excellent for those strength skills as you perfectly described for beginners who want to start their handstand journey how do they overcome the fear of inversion you can't really train productively if you're scared of falling. Uh, so that's always something I emphasize in the sort of beginning journey. And it's also something that annoys me a lot when I'm looking at uh, tutorials from, you know, some uh, fitness influencers and um, where sort of they give the impression that the starting point is wall-assisted handstands. Well, that's actually at least in my book, that, that would be more uh, on the limit or on the verge to intermediate handstand practice. The, I mean, the first steps would be learning to headstand, which is not as intimidating. And you can do a lot of, um, you, you can in a lot of way make it more safe. 
by doing headstands with you know pillows and using a wall and making sure you don't fall and then gradually sort of uh, getting used to the position getting comfortable there and most importantly learning to fall uh, first by falling controlled uh, like uh, you're, you're, you're not really falling because falling is by definition uh, something you do unexpectedly uh, but if you expectedly learn to fall in a controlled way then you can transfer this uh, over to unexpected falling if that makes sense yeah that's um, fantastic advice so both yeah so, so both from a headstand and from a wall uh, wall assisted handstand uh, once you sort of get there and you, you have this technique that you can dry practice like on the floor and you can get your feet on a chair and then practice to sort of fall the, the right way. I mean, there's no one right way, but uh, a safe way of falling is this wheel out technique where you sort of just lift up one hand and throw a, one of the legs into the ground. And this you can do starting in a pike position on the floor and then you can move your legs up on a chair and then you can move your legs a little bit up the wall a little further up the wall till you're in like a wall assisted handstand and eventually you could start to sort of kick yourself out from the wall uh, and uh, and and fall deliberately um, and then eventually you could try to actually kick yourself so hard off the wall that you have no other choice than falling <laughs> And that's sort of when you when you're at that level, then you you shouldn't need to be worried about falling when you're practicing handstand kick ups on the floor without any wall assistance, for example. Then you'd sort of know in your head that if I fall, then there's no problem because there really isn't a problem if you fall if you know how to fall. The problem is if you fall without knowing what to do, then stuff can happen. Excellent advice. I like that starting point with the headstand. It makes sense because you're in contact with the ground. You've got three points, a wider base support. It feels a lot more stable. It's close to the ground. So there's that less fear element because you're not further away. And that is a huge point you raised, Sandre, about learning how to exit the handstand or fail in a controlled sense. Because if we think about fear in terms of balance, it's the unknown element. People are afraid that they're going to fall over and hurt themselves. But through what you said with the exposure therapy in a way, if you will, starting in a really regressed manner, gradually increasing the, the difficulty or seeming difficulty, and then building confidence within ourselves to know that if we lose our balance, no stress. We know how to exit safely and withstand that. So that's... If people apply that, I think they'll find that handstand journey will gradually get less and less scary and they'll build that comfort. Today's sponsor for the show is Fitness FAQs. Use the coupon code PODCAST10 to save 10% at checkout when shopping on fitnessfaqs.com. Enjoy the discount and let's get back to the conversation. Regarding mindset, we all get frustrated when we don't progress. How do you deal with this personally and keep yourself pushing forward? healthy well for me this has mostly been related to my generalistic way of training because when i stagnate i usually stagnate in one part of my training and not all of them all at once so 
I'm able to sort of push my way through a boring period uh, of strength work by seeing major or minor <laughs> improvements in my hand balancing, for example. Uh, so this is also one of the reasons why I appreciate um, having such a generalistic way of training, because I even though I progress lower in each respective uh, thing, then I also uh, always see progress in something. Yeah, nice. That's a good approach to apply universally. If you don't have all your eggs in one basket, you can still derive pleasure and fulfillment in other areas. And that's a good takeaway for people that are dealing with injury and pain as well. I feel that those that are too binary, I'm just doing this at the expense of everything else. If they have an issue, it it crushes them. Their, their world's over. But what I take from what you're saying, Sandre, is that having more of like a holistic, well-rounded approach allows you to overcome setbacks, overcome injury, and still find a way to keep yourself fulfilled and progressing in some aspect. And for me, I've been injured in probably all the ways you could be get injured like classically in calisthenics training and every time uh, I never stopped training maybe a few days of just like uh, getting off the burst sort of pain and stuff like this but then there's always something even though even though I have a shoulder injury I'm able to find positions that I'm able to to train pain-free in so as long as it doesn't aggravate the pain and worsen the injury, then it's totally safe to keep on working out and training. People often believe that their lack of core strength is the reason why they can't unlock a certain skill or strength movement. Is this true or false based on your experience? Um, in terms of skills, it's most often false. Uh, <laughs> I mean, core strength is important, uh, obviously, and in some skills like, you know, the front lever and the planche and uh, back lever, stuff like this, core plays a crucial role, uh, although perhaps not as much as some people uh, believe. Um, and in handstands, for example, core strength plays no role whatsoever. Uh, it's core awareness, yes. I mean, a wall-assisted handstand requires some core strength because you uh, you are leaning onto your feet and you need some core strength to not collapse. But if you're doing a straight handstand, then no core strength really needed other than a lot of shoulder strength and core awareness, <laughs> spinal awareness. Um, so it depends on the skill, I guess. Uh, but uh, I think people overemphasize the core uh, to this end. I think um, learning to uh, training core for me is is more about learning to control my spine in different positions and um, getting strong in end ranges. I think that's much more useful in a skill perspective. Uh, no matter what sort of skill you want to learn, I think this will be a more um, applicable way of core training, if that makes sense. 
I love that distinction you've made between just brute strength versus the specific awareness of the rib cage, pelvis, the tilting of that and awareness in a movement. And I am in agreement with what you're saying, Sandre, and a quick test people can do to see if their core is the limiting factor. And just to drive home this is if you can hold a hollow body hold for 15 seconds, you've probably got enough core strength anteriorly for front lever stuff. It's a lack of scapular shoulder strength, which is reflecting itself in your posture. And the same can be said for the posterior chain. If you were to hold yourself off a ledge and keep your legs behind you in a reverse hyperextension manner, if you can hold that, you're probably sweet in that posterior core strength to be able to keep yourself horizontal in a back lever. So once again, it's if you're weak in those movements, it's a manifestation generally of scapular strength, shoulder strength, limiting you in your posture. What would you say is the most controversial fitness opinion that you teach with Berg movement? Well, uh, it might be uh, <laughs> how I emphasize uh, higher volumes. I know there is a lot of... Uh, talk out there um, about lowering your volume and uh, to the to the extremes in some cases where people recommend working out every 10 days and stuff like this um, and I think uh, to some extent these extremes at least are I mean it sounds very nice and I get that uh, people would want why people would want that and in many cases, it might be people trying to give you what you want as well. Um, I've, I mean, I've never talked with a successful athlete uh, tra who trains one time a week. Uh, have you? No. <laughs> Ever met anyone uh, no. who's actually successful? No. Um, and I think also volume should be an important part of uh, the con your consideration. I'm not saying that high volume, uh, high frequency, uh, whatever is good for everyone. I'm just saying that you should consider this along your journey. As you get more advanced, uh, as you get more fit, then you might want to revisit your volume. Um, if you're training at the exact same volume now as you did three years ago, I don't think that's uh, perhaps the, the best way to go about it. Um, you should expect that as you progress, as you get stronger, as you get into the intermediate stages, to the advanced stages, you should expect uh, to put more time and effort into your workouts and you should expect to have a higher volume, more sets, uh, more exercises perhaps. Yeah. And it also makes sense that you're going to have a frequency that is probably on the higher end because you're trying to get in this volume in smaller chunks, but accumulate it instead of, like you said, the person that's training once every week, for example, they would have to do a soul crushing amount of work in one session to be equivalent of what you spread out over more days. 
Yeah, and, and there's been actually quite a lot of research also uh, on the topic that as your workout length grows, then the efficiency of your workout decreases. Uh, and it's, it's um, also not a secret that the, the earlier uh, in a workout you do a certain exercise, the, the better you will get at this exercise. And the exercises that you have later in your workout will sort of get, give you less progress. And if you sort of extrapolate this, then uh, it makes sense that uh, one huge workout chunk is, is not necessarily uh, the best way to go. How important are accessory exercises when it comes to unlocking specific strength skills? I mean, it depends. Um, I don't find them uh, necessarily crucial. Depends on uh, your weak links, I guess. But the thing about uh, sp strength skills in particular is that they are most likely uh, targeting your weak links or they will necessarily be targeting your weak links. <laughs> if, you do a, for, if you try to learn a skill that let's just for simplicity's sake say that it targets your chest your, and your front delts uh, and your, your chest is super weak then that skill may target your chest and your front delts are sort of not getting uh, very much developed. So I, I think um, depends on sort of what your goal is. If your goal is to um, keep, as, keep developing all of your muscles uh, as much as possible, then it's important to um, uh, use accessory exercises to to make sure that uh, all of the muscles get the attention that they require, if that makes sense. Uh, because the, the weak link will always be the limiting factor in a specific strength skill. I find your story, Sandre, regarding your one-arm handstand journey very fascinating because I feel that in order to achieve this feat it took a lot of time and a lot of effort and you had a lot of lessons that you gained from this can you share what perspective you've gained from what's involved with achieving advanced movements uh, advanced skills such as the one arm handstand takes a lot of effort and time and um, you, progress is super slow so uh, it's very easy to get demotivated because you're basically not seeing any progress. Um, so what one thing that I would have done differently that I think would uh, hugely affect my motivation would be to find creative ways of measuring my progress. That is not just measuring uh, seconds of uh, hold. There are so many creative ways of uh, progressing. Uh, if you if you take notes, what things did you find were relevant to movements of balance or skill? How do you go about setting micro goals for those type of things? Succession succession rate, for example, uh, for for kickups or entries in in a one arm handstand in particular, the entry would be leaning from a two handed handstand into 
a pro regression of the one-arm handstand. For example, leaning into a five-finger assisted one-arm handstand, then going back to two-handed, that would be sort of uh, one repetition, successful repetition of uh, one-arm handstand entry, if that makes sense. So I, I would divide into entries because entries are super important. Those, if, you, if you're not able to efficiently enter a position, then you, you're wasting a lot of time. So when practicing entries, that should be the focus. Uh, and another thing uh, that I would divide into like different categories, you know, would be holds quite naturally. Uh, when practicing handstands, you're practicing balance and holds. Uh, and uh, instead of just counting the, the seconds of uh, balance, like uh, 10 seconds of freestanding handstand, you know, you, there's a lot of, when balance is uh, a part of the game, there's a lot of uncertainties. Uh, so it's better to, I think, to sort of accumulate time over, uh, over some a number of sets, for example. Or uh, I often also like to sort of set like a goal time. Let's say I want to balance 30 seconds per set, but I might need five tries to get there. Uh, and then perhaps two weeks later, it will take me three tries to get uh, to those 30 seconds. And it would obviously go up and down. So maybe I'm doing five sets of this and uh, then I could sort of take the average of that for that workout. And perhaps the average would be much better than uh, it was two weeks ago. With the hollow back handstand, how did you get the flexibility to be able to do this? <laughs> well, that's actually an interesting question. Uh, because in the beginning, I was basically training hollow backs. Uh, that was my main means of uh, doing it after attaining a handstand. But I have to admit that it was not super efficient and I got injured uh, like at least two or three times uh, because of this. Um, so at some point I started approaching it in a different way. I eliminated the balancing part to make it more consistent. Uh, so uh, one, I would do several drills, but one super efficient drill that I think in terms of both developing mobility, strength and awareness in the position is doing these hollow back races going up and down. And obviously the deeper you go, the, the harder it gets mobility wise and strength wise. Uh, so you could use in the beginning, just going in and out from a wall and then getting lower and lower with your legs uh, until you can do it on an elevated surface, for example, which is basically an elevated bridge press to handstand. There's a difference between demonstrating and building these type of movements because we see on social media, the end result, people like yourself doing these awesome hollow backs in these pristine locations with just movement mastery. But as you said, the majority of your time was spent building it independently with a wall. And I just think that that's something that needs to be drilled home for listeners and viewers that Experts uh, getting down in the trenches and doing the seemingly boring stuff with a wall to really build themselves up. How would you simplify scapular strength? Because we know that it's very important for calisthenics moves. Well, the, the, the easiest way to sort of look at it 
uh, is sort of as a shoulder stabilizer and um, whenever you're doing uh, something that put that loads your shoulder uh, your scapula will pull your shoulder most preferably in the opposite direction if that or in the same direction as gravity if that makes sense so in a push-up position you, you want to push your shoulders towards the floor uh, in order to, to remove uh, excessive pressure on the joint and to load your muscles, in this case the muscles responsible for protraction, scapular protraction. Uh, so, so this is sort of the way I usually look at it, to deload the, the joint and to load the muscles. Uh, and this is... I mean, shoulder positioning, scapular position is often confused, but uh, scapular positions is, or scapular positioning is basically pushing your whole shoulder joint into different positions. So uh, while you have your uh, rotator cuff, which is actually rotating your shoulder joint, then you have your scapula. Uh, and your scapula, the muscles responsible for scapular movement, they are basically displacing your whole shoulder girdle. <laughs> In They're elevating it, uh, depressing it, protracting it, retracting it. And uh, most in most cases, the, the best position is um, in the direction of gravity. I don't think it could get any more simple than that. That's that's a great tutorial right there. What are your favorite variables for improving body weight strength without adding weights? Well, it would depend on the exercise. Um, uh, but um, uh, deepness, uh, hands down, would be in pushing skills. For example, I think it's very much neglected. Uh, in, range of for motion. Example, hands, yeah, range of motion. Increasing range of motion uh, in handstand push-ups, for example. Uh, same for pull-ups. You could increase increase the range of motion there too. Would be very applicable to uh, muscle-ups if done explosively. Uh, slow muscle-ups if done uh, more static in more static way. Um, but in in pull-ups, it's very difficult to measure. Uh, and I like to be able to measure uh, in push-up kind of movements like handstand push-ups it's very easy to measure the increase of range of motion by elevating your hands on specific surfaces of specific heights um, so um, yeah that's uh, definitely one way but uh, there are hundred ways of increasing difficulties. I guess you could increase the lever in uh, lever kinds of movements, uh, like going from a, a tuck front lever to a, a one leg open half lay or an advanced tuck or whatever. Uh, that would basically be increasing the lever and thus increasing the angle in your shoulders and make it more difficult that way. But, I, but lately I've started experimenting a bit with weighted pull-ups and I've even tried weighted handstand push-ups a little bit Ooh, just to sort of get a feeling Welcome to the dark side, mate. Yeah, right. Um, so 
it's um, it's something that I, I tend intend to experiment more with, to see the transferability and to just to change up my my own training a bit as well. I think that's important as well uh, to change it up for motivation's sake and also for to to sort of uh, develop. Uh, perhaps parts of muscles and muscles that uh, has been neglected due to specific paths in the in the past. What are your thoughts on gracing the groove for obtaining neurological strength? Um, well, I think I haven't used it a lot myself, uh, but I think the, the sort of idea behind it is very sound. Uh, you know, it's basically high frequency training for a specific skill. Um, whereas instead of going hard a few couple times a week, then you go slow uh, and easy um, every day. Um, and for some skills, I think it would make very much sense if it's easy to do anywhere uh, or if you have the equipment necessary, uh, accessible at all times, more or less. Yeah, I just feel that if people are going to grease the groove, they should be really strategic with how they do it. In addition to what you said with choosing the right movements, actually train at a lower intensity. So you can't be maxing out every day, every single set. It needs to be like 50 to even 80%. It's If we have a spectrum of intensity relative to frequency with grease the groove, we're doing it often daily so the frequency is high the intensity has to be lower in order to get away with that as opposed to how most people prefer to train which is higher intensity lower frequency in order to allow themselves to recover what would your advice be for people that want to learn acrobatics as an adult um basics again (laughs) Uh, i mean everyone uh, every every adult who wants to learn acrobatics wants to learn the backflip. <laughs> in my experience, uh, maybe not uh, in all cases, but uh, you get the idea. They 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 want to learn the high level skills because those are the skills that look cool. And I totally agree. Uh, the, it might be boring to spend a lot of time on the basics, but for acrobatics, it is perhaps even more essential than. Uh, anything else because the outcome of um, doing uh, failing uh, and falling in the wrong way could be devastating I mean landing on your head in a backflip is not something you want to do even though it's fine in most cases you don't want to rely on luck (laughs) Um, so it's also about learning to be comfortable in rolling all different directions, learning to control your limbs properly, learning to fall, uh, setting up for uh, success in failure in terms of, uh, for example, if you want to learn a backflip, uh, then learning how to uh, bail out of a backflip by throwing your hands in the ground. Perhaps you'll hurt your wrists, but that's uh, better than uh, landing on your head, you know, so... Um, and also there's a lot of strength and awareness 
in in the acrobatics world as well. If you want to learn a backflip, you have to learn how to jump, uh, both technically and strength-wise. If you can't jump higher than your your hips, then you won't stand a chance learning to to backflip. Uh, and the higher you jump, the easier it will get, and the safer it will get actually. Yeah, even though the distance you potentially could fall is higher, then um, you're much more likely to uh, rotate enough if you have a high enough jump. Legendary podcast, brother. Where can people find out more about you and learn from you? Well, you have my social channels, uh, Instagram and, and TikTok, uh, Sandra underscore Berg. Uh, YouTube, Sandra Berg. Uh, I also have a website, uh, www.bergmovement.com. Um, where I uh, both have articles um, and also where I offer my programs through an app. Thank you so much for your time. It was a pleasure chatting. See you soon. Thanks everyone for listening. Visit fitnessfaqs.com to master calisthenics and become a bodyweight pro.